Hey, listeners, we have a little announcement. So if you are someone that is uh, maybe working on the back catalog of our show, or maybe you already listened to that, or maybe you want to revisit some old episodes, we're helping you out. We are going to start offering some classic episodes that will run on the weekends. So keep an ear out for those. That way you can get history three times a week, and they'll be right there in your feed alongside all of our new episodes. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So uh, today's subject is a really complex woman. Uh, and most of the time she is described as this sort of eccentric spitfire who really, really hated alcohol. And that is not inaccurate. Uh, but her story is really a lot more complex than that. And it is so complex, in fact, that, uh, and it is loaded with unique experiences. So we're doing a two-parter on her because as I dug into this research, I kept finding more and more and going, really? Oh, we got to talk about that too. Uh, so uh, as you examine her life, and I'm using the you in the very casual as one examines her life, uh, it becomes apparent where her anti-alcohol ideology comes from. But it's also really pretty amazing just how passionate and devoted to the cause she was. She's one of those people uh, that some people see as just a kook and other people see as, you know, really this amazing activist. And the reality is, you know, sort of probably somewhere in between. She's all of the above to many people. And and it's a really interesting life story to examine, but also sort of a psychological examination. So um, we're talking about Carrie A. Nation, and her autobiography was a big part of my research in this, in addition to other writings about her. And it's quite a read, so I couldn't help but include a number of quotes from it. So, so just know that you'll get a lot of perspective from her point of view. Carrie Nation was born Carrie Amelia Moore in Kentucky on November 25th of 1846. And then right out of the gate, there's a discrepancy about the spelling of her first name, to the point that when Holly sent this outline, I was surprised at the spelling of it. Her birth certificate... Her birth certificate listed it as Carrie with an I-E ending, but her father entered Carrie with a Y as her name in the family Bible. And this difference in spelling, as if you are looking things up about her, you will see it spelled both ways. And this would also be revisited later in her life. Yeah, initially she went by the I-E spelling, but she changed it later, and we'll talk about why in a bit. In 1854, George Moore moved his family to Missouri, where they made a home in a farmhouse in Cass County. And then the family moved to Texas six years later, but after only a year there, they once again moved back to their Missouri farm. But they were unable to stay there. Uh, the Civil War was still underway at that time. That was actually what had caused them to leave in the first place. Uh, and Cass County and other areas near the border between Kansas and Missouri were evacuated by the Union. So George and Mary took their children to Kansas. City. On November 21st, 1867, at the age of 21, Carrie got married to a man named Charles Gloyd. But their marriage was really brief. Gloyd was a doctor who had also served for the Union in the Civil War, and he was an alcoholic. And Carrie left him a few months after their wedding because she loved him, but she was also pregnant, and she knew that he was not going to be able to take care of a family because of how severe his drinking problem was. So Carrie moved in with her family, and she had her daughter, Charlene, named after her father, on September 27th of 1868. When the baby was only six months old, Charles died. 
Uh, he is generally described as having drunk himself to death. I never found any additional details in terms of cause of death other than just alcoholism. Carrie's experience with Charles's alcoholism really was likely the beginning of her vehement stance against drinking, and it really fueled the rest of her life. After Charles's death, Carrie liquidated her modest assets. They included a parcel of land that her father had given her, as well as Charles's medical equipment. And she had a house built in Holden, Missouri, for herself, Charlene, and Charles's mother. She would later write that she didn't really love her mother-in-law, but that she respected her. And, quote, I wanted to be with the mother of the man I loved more than my own life. Yeah, she talks about her mother-in-law a lot in her autobiography. And even though she says she didn't love her, she speaks of her very, very sweetly and clearly had a lot of respect for the woman and really did care for her. Uh, Carrie spent a year from 1871 to 1872 earning her teaching certificate so that she could support her child and her mother-in-law. And the arrangement that they sort of had in the household was that Mother Gloyd was going to look after Charlene and the house, and Carrie would be the earner. After several years of teaching in Holden's public school, she was let go when she and one of the school board's members argued over the way she taught the children. In her autobiography, she said that when she had the children read the sentence, I saw a man, out loud, she had them pronounce the the word A with the short rather than the long sound, the way that you would in a conversation. I saw a man. And that the board member was insistent that she teach them to use a long A sound. So I saw a man. So this particular sticking point caused serious clashes between the two of them, and uh, in the end, she got fired. Yeah, knowing, reading about her and as it went along, when I first read this, I was like, oh, that stinks. But I can see her personality being one that really gave it right back and probably was pretty dismissive of him as well. So it seems like it was definitely a case of two people with strong ideas, neither of which was willing to give. So less um, about how to pronounce uh, and more about being argumentative. (laughs) Right. I think there was definitely a do as I say, don't tell me what to do situation going on. Uh, And after she lost her job, Carrie was very aware of the precarious situation that her lack of income created for her small family. And so she made this decision that she was just going to have to get married again. Uh, And she did not have any gentlemen in mind for this marriage, but she prayed for God to deliver her an answer to the conundrum. And when she met David Nation 10 days after she had made this decision and prayed on it, she believed that their meeting had been divinely arranged. She married David Nation, who worked as a journalist and a lawyer, as well as a preacher at the end of 1874. And David, who was a widower, brought his own children from his previous marriage into the family. They all lived in Missouri for several years before moving to a cotton plantation in Texas in 1877. Carrie's mother-in-law from her first marriage also moved with them, and she lived with them for 15 years after Carrie and David married, all the way up until her death. That marriage was really not a blissful one. Uh, in her autobiography, Carrie wrote that David lied and deceived her, although she did not go into particulars, so we don't really know what that was about. Uh, she also added, quote, My Christian life was an offense unto him, and I found out if I yielded to his ideas and views that I would be false to every true motive. And it's unclear as well how her Christianity was at odds with David's Christianity, since he was a preacher. But she does mention in her life story that she was a literalist when it came to the Bible, which may have been 
too extreme for her husband. She credited the adversarial nature of her second marriage with making her the fighter that she was, but it bothered her to have had two failed marriages. Later in her life, she wrote, quote, the bitterest sorrows of my life have come from not having the love of a husband. But she also reconciled that sorrow with her firm belief that if she had been happily married, she would not have gone on to her important work of activism. She said, quote, I know it was God's will for me to marry Mr. Nation. Had I married a man I could have loved, God never could have used me. And we're going to pause here for a word from one of our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Carrie Nation's daughter, Charlene, and how the two of them got along. Carrie's relationship with her daughter, Charlene, was also not ideal. So at this point, she and her husband were not getting along, but she also had problems with her child. When the girl became ill with typhoid fever, it seemed that Carrie blamed her daughter's physical weakness on her deceased father's drinking. She recounted, quote, her case was violent and she was delirious from the first. This, my only child, was peculiar. She was the result of a drunken father and a distracted mother. The curse of heredity is one of the most heartbreaking results of the saloon. Poor little children are brought into the world with the curse of drink and disease entailed upon them. Carrie was also heartbroken when her daughter made it clear that she was not interested in Christianity. And Mrs. Nation, according to her own account, prayed to God to visit, quote, bodily affliction on her preteen daughter as a means to, quote, make her love and serve God. Soon after this prayer, Charlene developed an infection in her cheek, which caused a hole to open up in it, which left her teeth and her jaw exposed. And after having been really very ill for nine days, Charlene began to recover, and most of the hole in her cheek healed, although she then developed lockjaw. Carrie eventually took her to a series of doctors to repair the remaining damage. And eventually, after a number of doctors performed surgeries to her jaw that never achieved any real relief, she was sent to a relative in New York, also a doctor. This was a relative on her father's side. And that man took skin from under the girl's chin and grafted it onto the open cheek, so he finally closed up that hole completely. But her jaw remained unmoving. She was then referred to a specialist in Philadelphia after she asked her mother to pray for her jaw to heal. And slowly, over time, she was able to open her mouth. The text of Nation's autobiography gets a little medically hazy here because she asserts that portions of her daughter's jawbone, which had been removed surgically, had somehow grown back. Yes, she definitely characterizes this whole thing as... um some divine healing taking place that scientifically is not really supported. Uh, and at this point, Carrie had also been managing a hotel for a while as a way to make money. And while that enterprise had started out sort of hard scrabble, she really built herself a very successful business and bought her own hotel, which she also ran. And thanks to that business success, she was able to pay for Charlene's treatments. And after Charlene recovered, finally, she went and stayed with some of her father's family in Vermont for a while. And then she returned to Texas and not long after got married. Uh, the new couple lived with Carrie for a year in the hotel before they finally moved into a home of their own. During this period of her life, Nation became even more devoutly religious. She describes attending a Methodist conference in Texas where she felt profoundly moved during a sermon. 
She wrote, quote, There was a halo around the minister. I was wrapped in ecstasy. My first impression was that an angel was talking and that the house was ascending to heaven. I felt my natural heart expanding to an enormous size. I looked to see what impression was made on the people in the audience. I saw one man nodding. I was surprised, for no one seemed at all astonished or delighted. And she spoke with the other attendees after the service ended because she wanted to see if anybody else had the same experience she did, and she found that she was the only one that was so deeply affected by it. She decided in that moment that, quote, henceforth, all my time, means, and efforts should be given to God. And she wrote pretty openly in her life story about her religious devotion, drawing criticism, and that she was, quote, considered crazy. That's her phrasing. But she believed that the sensation that she felt that Tracy just described, uh, where her heart was expanding, was in fact because, quote, God was putting the whole world in my heart. And she later referred to this experience at the sermon as a, quote, transaction between my soul and God, as well as her baptism of the Holy Ghost. Soon after this, she was dismissed from teaching in the local Methodist Sunday school because she was not actually Methodist. But she soon moved on to teach in an Episcopal Sunday school. That, too, ended poorly when she refused to teach the catechism because she felt it contained elements that contradicted her literal reading of the Bible. As there were no other churches in her small town, she began she began teaching religion the way she felt proper and correct using the dining room of her hotel. Yeah, and she had a a, a number of students, so she clearly wasn't the only person who felt like she had had really like the strongest sense of the way to teach children about the Bible. But um, she ended up having to leave her hotel work, and thus that that uh, little sort of religious school that she was running in the dining room uh, when their family relocated to Medicine Lodge, Kansas. And her husband, David Nation, worked as a preacher there and then also in Holton, Kansas. But this was actually an issue of dismay for Carrie Nation. She felt that her husband was not truly religious and that he absolutely should not be leading a congregation. And she also argued with Medicine Lodge's church leaders for very similar reasons. It kind of seemed like no one in any church was quite religious enough for Carrie. These conflicts were really an ongoing source of stress for her, and she often felt that her expressions of faith were constrained by the structure of the church. She would sometimes have outbursts where she would announce during services that the congregation should sing different hymns than the ones selected by the minister, believing that the Holy Spirit had conveyed to her more correct information, and she would sometimes have passionate outbursts during the sermons themselves. While she believed she was worshiping in the truest way that she knew, most of the other uh, parishioners and church leaders found all of this to be too disruptive. Yeah, I, I, she was very much at odds with pretty much everyone on the issue of religion, uh, which I'm sure was very frustrating for everyone involved. Well, and uh, I, I <laughs> there, like, there are churches that do operate in this way where if you feel called to say something during the sermon, you say it. So it is unfortunate that 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 was not a church that existed where she lived. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I feel like somewhere out there was exactly the right place for her, but she never found it in any of the places that she lived. Uh, 
But despite all of these elements of discord in her life, she really found great purpose in Medicine Lodge. She became very deeply involved in charity work. Uh, she dedicated her time to women's and children's causes. She also helped to start a local chapter of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which had been founded in Cleveland, Ohio, the same year that Carrie and David were married. Her work as the Women Christian Temperance Union's jail evangelist well, with imprisoned men, also led her to conclude that the cause of most criminal behavior was alcohol. So she used the WCTU to organize temperance protests. She and other women would gather outside of bars and saloons to pray and to sing hymns. Sometimes she would walk right into the front room of such places. The bar was normally a back room, and they would do their hymn singing there. In 1880, Kansas had become the first state to make sale and manufacture of alcohol illegal. And so at this point, alcohol sales were illegal in Kansas, with the exception of transactions that were for medical purposes. That was, of course, used as a loophole a lot. But of course, making alcohol illegal did not make people stop drinking it. And there were a number of men-only drinking clubs throughout the state, and they really were not policed. So we're about to get into the real beginnings of Carrie Nation's more aggressive activism, probably the things people associate most with her if they have heard of her before. We're going to pause really quickly for another sponsor break before we do that. So even though Carrie Nation was vehemently against alcohol consumption and the bars where it happened, she didn't wish for the men who ran such places to get into legal trouble. She truly blamed their behavior on alcohol and wanted them to be saved. And that is why she opted to try to save them with religion. It wasn't long before her efforts achieved their desired effect. She would basically go and preach to various people in these sorts of uh, saloons and watering holes. But eventually, uh, the watering holes of Medicine Lodge, Missouri, were no more. They kind of started to shut down. And she took a lot of credit for that in her autobiography, claiming that because she had ministered to these men, she shut the whole thing down. Nation wrote to the county attorney and the state attorney many times to report the sale of alcohol in Kansas. Several of the imprisoned men she spoke with in her work as a jail evangelist had mentioned getting illegal alcohol in Kiowa, Kansas. So she implored in her letters that they consider the broken families caused by alcohol. And after a long period of writing all of these letters and seeing that nothing was being done... Carrie Nation came to the conclusion in June of 1900 that if the authorities would not stop the illegal saloons of Kansas, it was up to her to enforce the law. This belief was bolstered by what she claimed was a divine voice that spoke to her one morning. The night before, she had turned in her frustration to prayer, saying, quote, Oh, Lord, you see the treason in Kansas. They are going to break the mother's hearts. They are going to send the boys to drunkard's graves and a drunkard's hell. I have exhausted all my means. Oh, Lord, you have plenty of ways. You have used the base things and the weak things. Use me to save Kansas. I have but one life to give you. If I had a thousand, I would give them all. Please show me something to do. And so the next morning, that divine voice that we referenced a moment ago, according to her account, told her to travel to Kiowa and also said very clearly and very firmly, I'll stand by you. 
She acted on this calling by traveling immediately to Kiowa, and while driving in her buggy, she had a vision of human-like creatures with demon faces in her path. But she called out to God for help, and they fled. Later on in her life, she interpreted the vision this way, quote, I now know what those creatures were. They were real devils that knew more of what I was going to do than I did. The devil is a prophet. He knew Jesus when he was here, and he knew that I came to fulfill prophecy, that this was a death blow to his kingdom. And so the next day in Kiowa, she entered a men's club carrying what appeared to be several small paper-wrapped parcels. And she addressed the owner of this establishment, quote, Mr. Dobson, I told you last spring to close this place. You did not do it. Now I have come down with another remonstrance. Get out of the way. I do not want to strike you, but I am going to break this place up. As it turned out, the parcels were bricks, which she began hurling at the saloon's bar area. Nation was not a petite woman. Uh, I don't know why I had sort of thought in my head that she was. She was almost... Because I think she gets characterized as a little old lady. And so you think of her as a tiny petite grandmother. Nope. (laughs) And she was formidable. She was almost (laughs) six feet tall and reportedly weighed 175 pounds. And she was also very strong. She described a feeling of invincibility as she hurled these bricks and said, quote, my strength was that of a giant. She would, this was, this was not a situation where she just caused a little bit of damage. This was a powerful woman literally throwing an armload of bricks and she destroyed the place. And she proceeded to then repeat this scene in two more saloons that day and she drew a crowd as she made her way through town. And finally, uh, after hitting several places, she addressed those who were gathered in the street, quote, I have destroyed three of your places of business, and if I have broken a statute of Kansas, put me in jail. If I am not a lawbreaker, your mayor and councilman are. You must arrest one of us, for if I am not a criminal, they are. As she drove her buggy out of Kiowa, she dropped the reins and stood up, calling out to the crowd, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Her smashings had drawn enough attention to the illegal dives, as she called them, that the men who ran them were brought to trial in the months that followed, and all of them were found guilty. But while Carrie clearly saw the entire chain of events as a win for temperance, not everyone thought she was doing great things. Uh, the Kiowa paper ran an article that stated, quote, the consensus of the public opinion in this city is the old lady is of unsound mind and not accountable for at least some of her actions and that she should be kept at home by her people. Nation made a statement at a convention she hosted not long after these events, making it clear that the Women's Christian Temperance Union was not responsible for what she had done, and that she had acted alone without their knowledge. Because while many of the women in the temperance movement supported Carrie Nation, they as an organization, understandably, did not want to endorse her actions. Yeah, she uh, describes in in her writings meeting with uh, another one of the leaders of the Women's uh, Christian Temperance Union and and it basically being like, you got to say we weren't involved in this. Like, we we support you, but you got to say we were no part of this business. (laughs) And she very was completely understood and was happy to oblige in that regard. Uh, Nation was later sued for slander by County Attorney Sam Griffin. She had stated in the midst of all of her uh, her activist 
run through Kiowa that he took bribes to let saloons continue to operate. And he wanted $5,000 in damages. Keep in mind, this is $5,000 in 1900, so that is a lot of money. Her husband, David Nation, was her lawyer in the case. Uh, There was a lot of rumbling that she was going to get a different lawyer, but those never panned out, and so her husband uh, had to represent her. And Carrie was actually found guilty, but the amount of damages awarded was only $1, which Carrie later said was all that Sam Griffin's character was worth. And this is where we will leave Carrie Nation for today, and we will pick back up next time when she really gets into the smashing in earnest, as if this previous smashing was not enough. There will be a lot more smashing. She is smash-tastic, and she calls them smashings, which sort of becomes hilarious to me. Yeah. I don't that that's her name for it. I'm trying to figure uh, out if we have enough thematically related episodes in our archive to make a smashing things uh, tag, <laughs> because I know now we have Carrie Nation and, um, we have the, the riot, um, where the, the apprentices pulled down all of the, oh, yeah. the body houses. The, the body I, house riot. I gotta think if we've got some others for a smashing things tag. I'm sure we do. Destruction. Uh, yeah. So I have listener mail and it's a gift oh. and it is awesome. Oh. So. This is from our listener. She signs her name Chris, but also Heather Christine. She says, Dear Holly and Tracy, I feel like this letter should be addressed, Dear Friends, because I've been listening to your podcast for years now, and I feel like you're good friends that I see on a regular basis. I'm so grateful for all the time, energy, and creativity you both put into the show. I love learning history because of the both of you. There literally could be no greater compliment than that. It's so sweet. So uh Chris says, I like to think of myself with grand titles. I am a fiber artist and a toy maker, and I love to loom and knit and crochet and teach. Listening to your podcast brings out all of my skills, so I wanted to send you something in return for all of your effort. Please open the little containers and then open the little cakes to find the gift inside. Your show inspired me with thoughts of cake and butter and even fashion. I've decided to make a whole line of cakes and put them on my Threadbare Bakery Etsy shop. And as I sit here writing this letter, it's hard to find the words that I wanted to say to let you know how much you are appreciated. What you do is so important. I even get my husband and my son to listen to your shows occasionally, and they both always enjoy learning from you. Thank you for providing a safe place for my family to learn from humanity's triumphs and failures alike. So sweet. But oh my goodness, these things she sent. Okay, Tracy, can you see this? I'm holding this up to our camera since we are on a little Skype thing. It looks like a a tiny tiny cake. It's a teeny tiny cake on a little teeny tiny cake serving tray. But wait, it's a beautiful little crocheted cake. Uh, There are two, so there's one for each of us. And then you can take the cake out. And then you open up the cake. What? I know, it's amazing. Like, I took it out of the box, and I was delighted that it was a tiny cake. But then she wrote that we had to open it. And then inside is a little bitty balm. It's so sweet. That's beautiful. It's the cutest. It really is. This is, like, so up my alley. Tiny things are, like, a drug to me. I love them. So, <laughs> uh, And tiny little frilly things that look like dessert. Oh, my goodness. What a delight. So um that is Chris. We will also put a, a link to her little Etsy shop so you can see similar things that she makes in our show notes. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. This is the cutest thing. Yeah, thank it was you such so a delight. Uh, today is my first day back in the office after doing some traveling, and this was like the best gift to come Aww. back to. Uh, while we're on the subject of gifts, I do want to report that my Kentucky Derby mint julep glass did make it back to Boston in one piece. Hooray! Uh, so that is great, too. <laughs> they made them, uh, they you, made it to Atlanta in one piece and then my one made it back with me in one piece. I know. I feel like we've defied all the odds of glass travel. Yep. 
if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We can also be found across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History. So that's on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, Tumblr, Pinterest, basically everywhere that you might want to engage with us, you can as Missed in History. If you'd like to learn uh, a little bit more about the world around you, you can go to our parent site, which is howstuffworks.com. Type in almost anything in the search bar and you'll get an array of topics and articles and quizzes and all kinds of good stuff that you can uh, entertain yourself with while you learn. And you can visit me and Tracy at mistinhistory.com, where there is an archive of every episode of the show that has ever existed, as well as uh, show notes on the episodes that Tracy and I have worked on together. We recently consolidated those so that the show notes are on the same page as the actual show. So it's easier than ever. Uh, so do come and visit us and enjoy all of that stuff at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 